Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, should media outlets carry Trump's address on the border wall? Also, Police Chief Eric Gert was in studio to answer your questions explaining the new distracted driving legislation and to go over Justice Tullock's report on carding. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. As uh, we have been hearing on CHML News today, uh, the United States President uh, Donald Trump is going to deliver a primetime address with regards to, uh, well, the border crisis, as they're calling it at the White House. Now, some are debating whether the media outlet should actually carry this speech. And there's uh, some very, very legitimate concerns about that. Uh, Secondly, of course, is uh, what is he going to say tonight? Because he does have the possible power, we should say, because there's still some questions from the legality standpoint as to whether or not he could redirect funding. So there's an awful lot of questions here. And, uh, well, we're just not quite sure exactly how this is going to be handled by the networks or exactly what the uh, the president's going to say. Joining us to talk about this is Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science from Carleton University. Elliot, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Well, good morning and Happy New Year, Bill. And to you, too. An awful lot of angles that we can touch on. But let me get into the journalistic ethics of this for just a couple of seconds, because I know that some of the networks were actually having some very difficult discussions about this when the president announced he was going to do this tonight, Elliot. And that is, well, let's call a spade a spade here. Uh, Donald Trump is a stranger to the truth. Donald Trump has <laughs> lied time and time again. And uh, there are some people that are suggesting that, look, at if the networks carry this live, uncensored, they are aiding and abetting the president and misleading the country. What do you think? The networks apparently have all uh, exceeded. Apparently, it is going to go ahead on multiple networks. Well, I'll be I'll be watching it uh, very carefully. Oh yeah. The question of whether they should or shouldn't is uh, a, a little known uh, overlooked fact, which is now coming back up in some of the media. Is that the networks turned down President Obama when he wanted to talk about immigration? Uh, on, on a similar address, saying that it was too partisan. So there's a history of saying no, but, you know, Fox would have carried it in any event. So, no, this is going to go ahead. The Democrats are demanding an immediate follow-up, saying we know that whatever he says, it's going to be malicious and it's going to be full of misinformation, uh, a, a gentle way of, of phrasing what you just said. So they would like to go on prime time immediately to say, uh, we're, we're, we have an alternative uh, set of actual facts compared to what you just heard. And, and therein lies the problem, and I think, in the, in the, 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 I guess the challenges that some of the networks are facing here is, is how they're going to present this and how they're going to handle this. We do know this much, Elliot, that, uh, that the, the basis for what Trump has been trying to do for the last little while is, is, is basically that, look, he's saying that there are terrorists that are coming across the border with these uh, humanitarian cases, and it's a threat to the U.S. Uh, security system. However, the Defense Department and others have said quite blatantly that's not true. It's a lie. As a matter of fact, Chris Wallace, as I'm sure you right. saw yeah, on Fox News that. on Sunday, challenged Sarah Huckabee Sanders about that and said that all those people that were alleged terrorists or potential terrorists were, were, were caught at airports, had nothing to do with the border. And, and yet the White House stays with that story, even though there is no statistics to substantiate that. And they put out a very high level, I know, 4,000 coming in and they're all terrorists. And that's what uh, Huckabee Sanders got caught up on because... Uh, there were only six names on the terrorist watch list ever caught crossing that border. The total number of people, by the way, has been going down for a decade now of people trying to enter America by this kind of means in any event. So what makes it a crisis? So two aspects here. 
is there a security issue? And the issue is yes, uh, there is a security issue, but there's going to be debate now on what it is. The Republicans, and and I say the Republicans, not just Donald Trump, because they've stayed uh, with him on this, have said, oh, no, this is definitely a security issue because all of these people are a threat to our, our security. But others are saying the real threat now is that people are responsible for monitoring that border are not being paid. And that's the security issue, yeah. that there's an awful lot of federal employees now who may be, uh, this is a suggestion by somebody in the media, might be open to uh, blandishments uh, financial because they need the money, and that's a security threat. So uh, the security issue, what's interesting to me uh, right now, Bill, is that the Republicans have been nimble. Trump has been nimble. The Democrats have said, there's no crisis. You're manufacturing this. There's no security crisis, but there is a humanitarian crisis because of the policies you're following. And the Republicans, Trump, nimbly picked that up. And tonight you're going to hear a reframing of the issue that the Trump administration wants to deal with the humanitarian and security issues at the border. Yeah, which is, I, well, you have to wonder about the credibility of making a statement like that, Elliot, given the fact that they put little kids in cages and two of them have already died. And, you know, the way they've handled this crisis in the past hardly suggests that there's a humanitarian aspect to, to their approach to this. They are going to, if there is going to be a national address, it is going to be on immigration, it is going to be on the border, and they are going to frame it in a much more broader perspective that the, than they have been all along, which is there's a humanitarian reason uh, to to give us this money, and the Democrats aren't going to give it to us. Therefore, we have to take action. And as you know, and as you mentioned, there's even talk of Trump saying, hey, he's put this out, I can declare a national state of emergency and use the money from the Defense Department that's not yet allocated to other things to go ahead and build that wall uh, because we have to have a wall. A couple of things about that, and, and now we're getting into that other element of, of the legal debate that's happened since he's floated this idea just a couple of days ago, as to whether or not he can actually do this. Uh, presidents have tried to do this. I know Harry Truman tried to do it in 1952, and basically the court said no. Yes, a different time, different issue, yeah. different era, and a different court. Uh, <laughs> both of those courts, by the way, having Republican majority, Republican appointed judges as majorities, and it's unclear what, what this... Uh, uh, court will do. We have uh, one of the liberal mainstays, the Democratic-appointed liberal mainstays, uh, Bader Ginsburg, has, is, is now ill, and will she even be able to take part? And the, we have two recent Republican appointees, Trump appointees. So if the Supreme Court gets into this, it's not at all clear which way they will go. It is being debated whether the president has that authority. But let's link this to some other issues. Once the Trump discovers a national security loophole, he uses it. We are still paying for the steel uh, and aluminum tariff on can uh, in Canada going into the States because that was a secure national security loophole that he's used repeatedly once he discovered it as part of his trade initiative. Now he's discovering a national security loophole, possibly, potentially, for dealing with this issue. The problem he has on this, which is legal, there's people debating it, is whether it would fly with the public. He has to make a convincing enough case there's a sufficient crisis to warrant a national security invocation, and that's a political 
matter. It's a messaging matter more than a legal one. And and from that standpoint, I mean, we know his base are going to buy whatever he says tonight. So I mean, that's that's inconsequential. But but he's got to swing some of the hearts and minds and some of the rather I, I guess shall we say conflicted Republicans right now. Because if he goes through with what he's suggesting here, Elliot, as you mentioned, the money that's going to be available to him that he might be able to reallocate is money that's already been budgeted, uh, which is not nearly enough to build a wall. And, and it's going to be taking away from projects in some of these Republican districts, which is going to put these guys who are looking for re-election in two years in a very bad light with the public and the voters. Yes, we have a situation this past election, just, just behind us now, where the Democrats had a very tough uh, road to, in terms of the Senate, and they indeed lost uh, two, two seats or three seats in the Senate because of the uh, math. Of your, but in, it's going to be reversed. Coming up in 2020, there's more vulnerable Republican Senates, uh, senators up for re-election. A number of them are now starting to speak out in the Senate saying, you know, we probably should find a way to settle this. And standing back one step, well, we're talking about the... the the optics of it and the politics of it, there's a shutdown of the government of the United States, a significant portion of it, which makes the U.S. look both incompetent, a laughingstock, and vulnerable to the outside world. Well, let's talk about that, because uh, I, we and you've alluded to the fact that, for instance, the border security guards are not being paid. Uh, some of them are deciding to call in sick. Homeland Security staff has been significantly reduced because of this uh, government shutdown. But for Trump to go on national TV and, and claim that this is creating a national crisis is akin to the guy that murders his two parents and then, yeah. you know, ask for mercy because he's an orphan. Yes. Uh, I think the word that will be back in use is chutzpah. Yeah, uh, that's, okay. That's the very definition of it. So, the by the way, his own, uh, the people who are... <laughs> The people protecting the uh, president also aren't being paid at the minute, <laughs> so he, that might give him some pause. The The situation is, is bizarre, and at the moment there's no visible way out. We clearly need to have an arrangement where each side can say we have a victory, a win-win, because otherwise this looks like it could drag on for a very long time. And and therein lies the problem again, because there doesn't seem to be any dialogue going on between even the Democratic leaders, Pelosi and Schumer, and uh, and the White House staff about this. Uh, in other words, they they seem very very entrenched in their positions. Uh, you know, for instance, when when he's asking for the money, and the Democrats are saying, "Okay, what are you going to spend it on?" Uh, you're saying border security. What specifically? Because the Democrats are saying, "Well, what about drones? What about more staffing? What about more entrance points and and, and opportunities to fast track these things?" And and they're just saying, "No, we're just going to build a wall." Uh, but it is being very nonspecific about this. And and the other thing I want you to comment on this about, Elliot, is we're talking about the Democratic leadership on this. We're talking about the White House response to this. The Republicans who control the Senate right now, a.k.a. Mitch McConnell, are, are they're not even in the ballgame here. Well, yes, uh, Mitch McConnell is one of those senators up for re-election in 2020, among other things. And he, however, is in the situation of saying, and he said this more or less uh, in these words, I'm not going to bring any bill before the Senate. And he's still the leader of the, the Senate. Uh, the, the, they have the majority there. He can decide what, what gets voted on and what doesn't even get voted on. He said, we're not going to do this anymore until I have it in writing. Now, we're speaking now the, the Republican leader of the Senate is saying he's not going to bring a bill uh, forward for being passed till he has it in writing from the Republican president that he will sign that bill if it's passed. 
he distrusts the president uh, uh, to keep his word because the Senate did just pass, and the Democrats have played this part rather well, did just pass unanimously almost a bill to uh, reopen and everything was all set and they had an agreement through Pence uh, on this. Sent it, we're about to send it to the, to the president for signature. He said, I don't bother sending it. I'm not going to sign it. Therefore, the Republicans are now saying in the Senate under Mitch McConnell, we're not going to bring anything forward. The Democrats, meanwhile, are saying in the House under Pelosi, why won't the president say take yes for an answer? We are going to, we the Democrats, in majority in the House, are going to repass the Republican bills that passed in the Senate. We will have a Republican path to reopening the government, and we're going to do that. And that, of course, puts Mitch McConnell and the Republicans on the spot, and Trump as well, because Trump has already said he's not going to sign it. It doesn't have money for the wall. But there is a clause in that that talks about further discussions and debate about exactly how they're going to handle uh, security, especially border security in situations yeah. like that. It seems to me that that's the compromise. And two weeks ago, that was the compromise. Uh, and, and even the Senate Republicans seem to think that. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, it's going to be interesting to see, first of all, what the president says today. And I think you've given us a pretty good idea as to how he's going to approach this. Uh, I guess one of the main questions that uh, supporters of the president are going to ask, can this guy stick to the script? Because when he gets off script, Elliot, uh, yes. usually bad things happen. Yes, I think we'll see teleprompter Trump tonight. That is, the, the Trump that can read the teleprompter, look presidential, and behave in a manner that uh, seems reassuring more broadly to the public that he is, in fact, you know, a normal president. Uh, whether, and I believe he probably will stick t- uh, tonight to that script. The script itself, however, may not be convincing enough to a broad enough sector of the public uh, this is part of the blame game. Tonight you'll see him say this is all the Democrats' fault and the Republicans are being reasonable, and that'll be the central message uh, that we'll hear tonight. Well, and we're going to get a response, obviously, from the Democrats, who well, I'm we'll sure are busy it. right now crafting some because they know what's going to come annually, yes. don't they? But we don't know for sure. I think it's likely that the networks are going to carry that live. I suspect they will. But what's, I guess, the end result of this by about 9.30 tonight, uh, when both sides are finished uh, with their, their national addresses, Elliot, is uh, this is not the end of it. This is really just drawing the battle lines, because this is obviously going to go to the courts. Well, we don't know where it's going to ultimately go, because we have right now essentially wall versus no wall. The Democrats are saying never wall, and Trump is saying uh, never anything else unless there's a wall. And they have to find a way to climb down from that. But let's uh, remind ourselves also that any day you and I are talking about this, we're not talking about Mueller, we're not talking about the Russians, we're not talking about his tax returns. This is a grand diversion that works well personally for Donald Trump. Yeah, and that's not lost on us, but I guess the one reassuring thing is that while you and I are watching this tonight, uh, Robert Mueller's going to be busy on his files. He's got work to do, and he uh, is just plotting along on this. Uh, yeah. What was the old phrase, Elliot? Must-see TV? Yes, well, uh, it is must-see for, for junkies. Uh, I'm not sure the Republican base really cares. Uh, we should, we should try talk about this a moment. We talk about the Trump base and the Republicans. They're more or less the same thing these days. Uh, the the Trump base is the Republican Party base, and that is what keeps the Republican elected leaders in line. Uh, they have taken the word primary and made it a verb. Republicans who do not hew the line that Trump lays out, whatever that may be, may be primaried. Uh, and they live in fear 
that they will find themselves having competitors within the party that will throw them out of office. You know, the people currently in office will lose the possibility of even contesting elections because Trump has that kind of power, along with Fox News and the ecosystem that goes with that, to Rush Limbaugh. They've got that kind of power over the party. That makes getting out of the wall very difficult. Absolutely, and I guess it's not lost. We're just about out of time here. That the, the reason the president wouldn't sign that bill that was passed through the uh, the Senate and the Congress was because people like Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity told him not to. It was, ne- yeah. it was not political. It was it was basically for that. Elliot, we'll be watching and see what happens. Indeed. I know we'll talk about this more in the next couple of days. Thanks for this today. Uh, always interesting, isn't it? You betcha. Take care. Elliot Tepper, of course, uh, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's time for the Chiefs Town Hall. Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Gert is with us here in studio for the entire hour. Uh, welcome back. Happy New Year. Good to see you again. Thank you, Bill. Happy to be back. Uh, let's let's uh, get into, uh, well, I want to get into the Tulloch Report. Let's do that right off the top here because this is pretty extensive and something we've been talking about for the longest time now. Uh, and uh, Justice Tulloch, of course, uh, was here in town uh, gathering information. Uh, he's been a busy man over the last number of years. The previous government, of course, hired him to, first of all, look over police oversight, and he issued a report on that that you and I talked about. Uh, this had specific uh, interest, of course, to do with carding and street checks. And uh, the report, 310 pages long, and I know you've already read it. Uh, and uh, Not yet, actually. I'm working on it. We, yes. Well, you're, you're <laughs> working your way through it right now. It's required reading. Yes. Uh, but anyway, uh, the, uh, the, the overview here suggests that uh, there is little to no proof that uh, police carding has any effect on crime or arrests. So that's according to Justice Tullock's report. Uh, I want you to comment on that and, and maybe give us a, a, a thumbnail sketch as to what you've seen from the report so far, Chief. Yeah, so first of all, no surprises, I think, in Justice Tullock's report. We met with him extensively as a service, uh, but also through the OECP. Uh, one of the comments I'll reflect that I, I said at his first report to Justice Tullock, and I said, uh, you know, not to be um, kind of flippant, it wasn't. I said, you've managed to strike a very good balance here. And of course, as a judge, you would expect that, but that doesn't always happen. But I think the balance is between the public interest, uh, the interests of uh, public safety, I'll say, from kind of a, um, a law enforcement perspective. That's the balance he had to strike. Quite frankly, I didn't find anything startling in there. And you made the distinction off uh, line here uh, between carding and street checks. And carding is where it is arbitrary. And we've never supported that. And in fact, I think you'll find in the report, because Justice Tullock mentions some of the training that's required, he cites Hamilton, as I understand it, uh, because when we provided that original training uh, through then Chief DeCare and our legal counsel, I know legal counsel did a whole uh, research on the case law up in including the Supreme Court of Canada on whether it's um, investigative detention, whether the articulation for those things. Uh, in the States, it's known as stop and frisk. Um, but in Canada, it's a different um, uh, different uh, definition. But we looked at all those things, and we've never supported as a service arbitrary detention, certainly on the basis of any of the prohibited grounds. But, and from my perspective, and I've spoken about this in public, um, we have emphasized to our members all the way along, you have to have legal grounds for doing what you're doing, because if you don't, and it leads to, you know, a significant arrest, or let's say, you know, I know it's extreme, but you find a body in the trunk, 
you have to draw the law legally from the original stop to whatever evidence you discover. And that was, you know, adjusted many, many years ago with the Constitution Act. And uh, so from my perspective, we don't want bad case law. We don't want the complaints and follow the law. Like it's, it's fairly straightforward in my opinion. Fundamentally, but, but, I think yeah, that's the, what just the, 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 well, the waters have been muddied, though, Chief, over the last number of years because of uh, some subjectivity on the debate and, and yep. some of the people involved in the discussions. And 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 I get I know that people are going to say, well, you're splitting hairs when you start talking about the difference between street checks and carding. But I think it's a very important difference. And I think what happened here, a lot of people have conflated those two and say, well, they mean Great. the same thing. Uh, and, and, and I can remember an example, well, former Chief De- yep. DeCarrig used an example one time. He says, you know, if somebody's walking down the street at 3 o'clock in the morning, uh, you know, if you walk up and say, what are you doing here? What's your name? What's your address? I mean, that's carding. And then, and I think that's what Justice Tulloch is doing. But if somebody's walking down the street at 3 o'clock in the morning with a crowbar in their hand, uh, and, and they're looking, at, and you figure, what's going on here, buddy? I mean, the officer does have a responsibility in the interest of public safety to, if they see what could potentially be a dangerous situation to approach those individuals. But now it just seems as if, no, that means the same thing. And I've talked to officers mm-hmm. on the street that have told me offline that, look, it, now we're afraid to approach anybody because we're afraid we're going to go down this this vortex down here that's just going to lead us into all sorts of legal problems. And what I'll say in our jurisdiction, because I've been alive to the issue, particularly where you say people are not engaging, uh, one of the things I've stressed to the board and to our members is that they do continue to engage. And quite frankly, uh, your first example, I can walk up to somebody and say, what are you doing here? The prohibited part is asking their name. But that doesn't mean I can't stop and engage in conversation. Should they choose not to engage with me, that's fine. But, and there's constitutional uh, cases on this as well, where the obligation is for us to do our job, which is sometimes ask those questions. The limitation in terms of the COI legislation, uh, the collection of information in certain circumstances, prohibitions and duties, that's a formal title, is that you have to limit when you ask a name and record that information. But our obligation as police officers, when we swear oath, is to ask those questions sometimes. You have to do it, this is my point about legal requirements, you have to do it within the law, but we also have, through the Supreme Court decisions, an expectation that we will do those things as law enforcement officers at 3 a.m. Now, your differentiation between holding a crowbar, where, and I'll add, let's say we've had entries in the area, well then I've got a constellation of factors that lead me beyond just an arbitrary detention because one, why perhaps you're, uh, I don't know, your, your car trunk is fixed and that's the reason you got it, but if I don't ask you, I won't know that. And then two, if I've got evidence of uh, entries in the area, that gives me a second piece. You then, of course, have to articulate why you're doing what you're doing as opposed to, no, I just stopped him because, well, that's not good enough. It's why did you stop him and then articulate it. But but th- that's, that explanation seems to get lost and, and it just seems as if everybody's throwing one blanket over this whole thing and saying get, engaging with people without their permission is, is, is wrong. And, and I, I'm wondering, I haven't read the report yet either, but I'm wondering how Justice Talk addresses that. Well, I think he draws another distinction between carding, as you called it, and then information gathering for the purposes of intelligence. And there are pretty strict requirements with regard to intelligence reports and how they work. We shared that with Justice Tulloch, which is different, again, than a card, and it was a form that Toronto had created, that has specific information. Uh, and intelligence it was basically forming a database. Correct. But intelligence reports also form a database, and that's through uh, Criminal Intelligence Service of Ontario, and we follow standards and all the rest of that stuff. And that information is, is 
quite important sometimes. The distinction is, if I know who the person is and I see them engaging in conduct, I can put an intelligence report in. They're out in public. I know who it is. But I haven't asked them what their name is because I don't know who they are. That's the difference. Carding is, I don't know who you are. And unless I have a legal reason to ask you why you're doing what you're doing, then I'm prohibited from asking your name. How is this impacting frontline officers and, 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 and policing in general in situations like this? We do know that the number of street checks uh, went down significantly, not just here in Hamilton, but in other police services around the province, uh, when this debate started to become front burner issue. Uh, and, and as I say, I've talked to some officers right now that are, are pretty skittish. And I mean, even, you know, former chair of the Police Services Board, Lloyd Ferguson, told me some of the officers are told him that basically, uh, you know, there's, a, there's a, an acronym that they're using on the streets sometimes. You just, you know, keep going. Just, you know, forget about this because it's not worth the bother. Great. I, I'm very much alive to that issue. And, and my message and through our command was, and also the training was, no, we expect you to be engaged. There's constitutional law and case law that supports that. In fact, you have an obligation to do those things. Just make sure you do it within the legal requirements versus your first scenario, which is, oh, geez, don't get in any trouble because you don't want to have that. Um, we deal with trouble. <laughs> you know, it's an understatement. We get called when there's a problem, not when everything is going fine. So there's an obligation that we have to investigate, do those things, but you have to do within uh, the law. That's all. Um, so I know it's a fine distinction I'm making, but what the unintended consequence you can have from just saying, oh, look, never get in any trouble. Um, no, you're still required to do your job, still required to intervene. You're required to make decisions on arresting people or not. Um, if you arrest in a domestic situation, let's say, you still have to legally articulate why you've done what you've done. It's the same thing on the street, and you've given a good example. So I got a guy with a crowbar at 3 a.m. wandering uh, a community, let's say in a high entry area. I think the public would have an expectation to say, uh, I think you should probably speak to that person. So we do. If you can illegally articulate your grounds as to why you were doing that under the COI legislation, then you can submit a card. That's pretty straightforward in my opinion. Are officers comfortable with that distinction? I believe they are because I'm watching the logs and, as I say, our operational end of it. And I'm quite impressed. We had an arrest just last night, um, without getting into the details, but it was uh, a person who was previously assaulted sex trade workers. And the person operated on the information they had with the, um, with the potential person and the vehicle, stopped them, and in fact interceded. We don't know what we may have deterred, but I'm quite pleased that they're continuing to do that. Uh, my comment quite often the front line is, and having been a traffic officer, as you know, is val tags are the root of all evil. Why would that be? Because some criminals don't keep up with their administrative responsibilities. But if you have an expired val tag, you're driving out around in the community without paying all the rest of the fees that we do. So I have a legal um, requirement to stop you and find out is your validation for your vehicle. And that can lead to other things, but it's a legal stop. So you have to be able to articulate why you're doing what you're doing. Do you know the apprehension that, that I'm hearing from some frontline officers about this, this conundrum right now? Uh, also has a lot to do with administration. It's interesting that uh, Justice Tulloch is the same one as we just talked about at the beginning of the show uh, that also did the report about police oversight. And, uh, and, and these two are not mutually exclusive. I, I mean, the Correct. fact of the matter is, is that if you're going to go down this road and if you feel as, okay, there's going to have to be some sort of an engagement here, and there is going to be some, some discussion and argument about exactly what happened and to whom, et cetera, et cetera, uh, it's essential that they clean up their act when it comes to police oversight because that's one of the other problems here. Is if it goes into that realm, it takes sometimes years to get these things resolved to nobody's satisfaction, really. 
Agreed. And you know what I would say, not in defense of the organizations being OCPC and the OIPRD, um, NSIU, is uh, yes, the turnaround time is very long. And we have stated that publicly, both, you know, myself as a chief, but also through the Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police. We do believe in the oversight. And uh, we just would like quicker turnarounds for everybody's benefit. When you've got a fatal shooting, the family is waiting, the officer is waiting, the public is waiting, uh, the command is waiting. And everybody's waiting till you have resolution. Yes, do your job. Yes, do the investigation as thoroughly as possible. But again, two and a half years for some of these resolutions. You've got all these people waiting on tinder hooks, and you know what's the outcome? So I agree, and that's what Justice Tullock recognized. Uh, but it becomes a resource issue. I get that. But again, from a public confidence piece. Um, we don't take two and a half years for most of our investigations. In fact, we do media releases with what we know, with what we can release, usually next day or the same day. Uh, that's another piece that we've stated uh, in terms of uh, public release of information, particularly through the SIU, at least a thumbnail sketch of what happened. Uh, in its absence, you have the void filled by conjecture, theory, and in cases of it's two and a half years, those things can take on their own life. You've used uh, phrases, uh, for instance, uh, for in exploring uh, suspicious circumstances, uh, 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 identifying information, et cetera, et cetera. Are, are those clearly defined uh, as far as the frontline officers are concerned, or is there too much ambivalence in, in, in the current discussions? Because Justice Tullock does address that in the report as well. What I can tell you is when I first saw the legislation, I went down to our ministry, and I was part of OECP at the time, and that's what I keyed on right away. I said, do you have a legal definition for reasonable suspicion? Because I said, the only place I know where it appears in terms of definitions is around uh, ride lanes and where you have reasonable suspicion that somebody has been drinking. But it says reasonable grounds means, and I cited what it means, and I've done that before in this show, suspicion is a different thing. I said, it would be very helpful if you had a definition within your act to state what that means, because you're acting us to act on that. And what you found now in Justice Tulk's review, that's one of the things identified, we need uh, a definition of what that means. So to your point, it'd be extremely helpful if the uh, law writers did so. In their absence, what happens is you have cases tested before courts, and then a judge usually has to write what that definition is. But does it, and again, I understand that those sometimes will set precedents. I mean, but the next case could be totally different and be a totally different set of circumstances. Correct. So there's going to have to be a legislative answer to this as well. This is not just Justice Tullock's. Oh no, no, and it has to be the lawmakers that provide that definition. I guess my point in ta telling the story was, I raised this personally uh, when they before they had actually enacted the law, so it wasn't done. Okay, I get that. Um, Justice Tullock has now said it needs to be done as well. He's just affirming that for the purposes of clarity, it would really help. But the previous government tried to address this mm -hmm. and with legislation, and the, the attorney general at the time uh, introduced, and, and of course they, they dealt with legislation that effectively said you can't do this anymore. Uh, did they throw the baby out with the bathwater there? Did, did they tie the hands of officers with that sort of legislation? Well, I, again, I, I don't want to take a simplistic answer to it because you have to read the legislation, being the COI legislation. You have to know, and this is the professionalism or occupation. You have to know what the case law is, whether it's this investigation or a homicide or a drug investigation or a domestic or an assault out in the street. Our requirement is to know not just the law, but the application of law, what the case law says. So this is an added piece where they drafted legislation. If you know what the legislation is, and it's my, my opinion, it's our officer's 
obligation to learn that stuff as they create the new stuff. And we have to work within those confines. So I think if you know the legislation, then you can do your job. Does it make it a little more complicated? Sure. Does every case law that comes down with an added requirement make it a little more complicated? Think of Feeney, which has to do with search and seizure. Uh, yeah, that made it more complicated, but we adjusted, and we do. And part of the professionalism of our occupation is to stay current. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. From time to time, because everybody's got a cold in the city these days. I mean, this goes with the season. I don't, I don't think I've ever met anybody in the building here that doesn't have one right now, <laughs> and I'm just I'm still dealing with it as well. So, our apologies if uh, you hear some throat clearing as we go through this. Look, we were talking about the the carding incident and and, and concerns that, that were going on. And you mentioned about the changes in, in policies, uh, Chief, uh, that are pretty much almost a, a moving target. I mean, because it doesn't seem to be very static, especially with some of the debate that's been going on. How do you keep frontline officers uh, informed as to what the changes are and, and the impact that it's going to have? Are there seminars about these sort of things? How do you, how do you approach this? Well, there's a variety of methods for the training. And uh, as you know, with the COI legislation, it was mandated with a fixed date and actually caused us to... Uh, uh, spend money to provide that training under the timelines. It was January 1st of last year. Uh, so we delivered that. And we also have what's called block training where uh, all officers go through a week of training, including use of force. And we find that's a better way to deliver it. Uh, there's no shortage of topics, to your point, and the rate of change. Sometimes you have to communicate it out through email. Uh, sometimes you rely on, you know, I've read uh, statutes now and uh, yes, it's as exciting as it sounds and uh, quite complex, depending on how it's written as well. And I know, you know, one of my comments of the COI legislation was not particularly well written. The reason being, you go down to, you know, 1C. 1C refers you to 7B. 7B refers you to 9A. And you're bouncing around for all these definitions, everything. <clears throat> Some statutes are written better than others. My view, that was not particularly well written, but, you know, you got to wade through it and learn how to do it. So emails, training specifically, uh, designating training. We also have online education that we do through um, uh, CPKN largely, which is a Canadian Police Knowledge Network. And there are core curriculum that are delivered through that. And, of course, you need the techniques to properly deliver that with measurables and all the rest. Is the police college in Elmer specifically for, for new recruits, or are there refresher courses? Do officers go down there for, for retraining on some issues? Yeah, they deliver primarily they deliver the basic constable training in terms of volume, but there's uh, a whole range of courses at the senior level, investigative level. Um, uh, some of the courses uh, are also offered at the Canadian Police College, and then some of the training, like drug recognition expert training, for example, you have to do that down in the States because, of course, you have to test with live subjects, and we're looking at some revisions around there, too, but really our mainstays are the Ontario Police College and the Canadian Police College. All right, a number of other things we want to get to in a limited amount of time. We mentioned that with uh, the uh, advent of a new year here, uh, some uh, new distracted driving legislation, uh, which has come into effect. Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so obviously through the course of time, and I know on this uh, show, we've talked about uh, distracted driving and its impact, and I know that Claus Wagner speaks about it uh, yeah. very often. He's very good on it. He's very passionate about it. Um, and I know he's made some challenges over the holidays and said, you know, don't answer that text and then see if it was worth, in this case now, $615. So generally what I've seen through the course of my career is um, as these issues are not resolved, then, of course, the statutes do change. The fines go up, and then you start to add demerit points. And this is the way it's going for distracted driving as well uh, because, of course, and you see it 
particularly with the OPP and their statistics, uh, relating it to either fatal collisions or serious bodily harm and collisions. And, you know, we used to at uh, driver training, for example, uh, they said, okay, if you're distracted, you know, think about if you're in your car driving along whatever speed you're driving, you're looked down for three to four seconds, and they tell you the distance you travel. We can do the same thing with distracted driving. So if you're not looking out at the road for, let's say, four or five, probably longer than that, seconds, think about the distance you travel and how much changes in that time in terms of vehicles coming from uh, side streets, pedestrians doing things in front of you, uh, traffic slowing for something else. It's actually a very good test to say, okay, if I wasn't looking, you could just count in your head, five seconds, what would change in front of me? And usually people are surprised when you think, wow, all that stuff happened in five seconds. So because, you know, and this is Claus's challenge, was that text message that the Leafs won or lost, whichever you prefer, was it that important? Probably not. So same thing with that. And if it's that important, pull over, stop. You're in a parking lot. Now look at your thing. But but it, 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 there's an epidemic going on. Agreed. I mean, I see, you and I have talked about this. We see this all the time. Yes. And, and 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 they're blatant about it. I mean, I see it on the highway. I mean, if we're going up north and I, you know, eighty kilometer speed limit, and I see people looking down at their laps as they're driving by me, and I figure you're not even looking at me. Correct. And I guess there's a bit of a cross message too with all the instrumentation that we now have in vehicles, including the front head display. Um, you know, you're looking at a lot of other things, you know, I don't know if many people look at their RPMs anymore because not many people drive standard, uh, but all the other information that's going on, that could be distracting as well. Now when the handheld device, so one hand is off the wheel, maybe two, um, and add that your lack of focus, just not a good situation. And clearly the public has stated it, Never mind, you know, me, law enforcement. The public is really upset with this and saying, you're placing me at risk because you've got to read your stupid deck message. Yeah, one of the things that we've talked about in the past, and, and, and let's talk a little bit about the technology, uh, cell phone, you know, distracted driving, talking on the phone. Um, and and I, I see still see people handing, they're holding their phone up here right by their face, on their, and they've got it on speaker, but it's in their hand. It's not hands-free. By Correct. definition, it's not hands-free, but they seem to think that, no, this is okay. I'm, exactly. I'm, not, I'm not holding it up to my head. And you've just defined it. You're holding it in your hand, handheld device. That's why they say that. Um, and, of course, they've got the Bluetooth. They've got the hands-free. That's why they recommend it. But even on that point, to your point, um, you know, you're engaged in a conversation either in the car or on the phone. Is your attention exactly where it needs to be? And is, the, is that phone call that important? So these are decisions you have to make as a driver. And, you know, and, and having been at the scene, I don't mean to over-dramatize it, you know, talking to people, whether impaired driving or there's been a fatality, and it's usually this remorse and say, geez, you know, uh, geez, I should have just done this. It was so stupid. Yeah. And is every, you know, every time it's going to end up like that? Thankfully, no, but some of them do. So is it really worth it to you? And that's kind of Claus's challenge. Do you see... Well, maybe just uh, let's let's step back a second. Statistically, do you see people getting this message, or do you see that it's as rampant as ever? I think you've offered, <laughs> offered that up yourself, um, and I, you know, I'll I'll see it. People, you can tell uh, if they're driving necessarily slowly and drive by them, and of course their heads down looking at whatever, or and they think they're being safe because they're driving slower. They're still not looking at where they're going. Uh, I think from a public perspective, and the reason the legislation is being bumped up is people are not getting the message. Yeah, and, and, and let's talk about some of the finer points of this, too. If they're stopped at a stoplight and the light is red uh, you're, and you're still texting, that's illegal. Correct, because you're operating a your motor vehicle. That's why I say if you're going to you pull off the road, you stop, it's in park, and you're not in the roadway in a traveled portion, nor can it be set in motion. 
you're off the road. So, so that's change, and, and that's it's going to cost you more money. And I think this is what the second or third increase in the Correct. fine. That I believe it's the third. Okay, that they've had on this, and and I know they're more substantial in some other jurisdictions, and we may, in fact, have to go to that. Uh, we just got through the holiday season, and of course, there's an increase in ride programs. Uh, had you, any information about uh, volume, et cetera? Yeah, and uh, I, I don't have the numbers right in front of me. I do know that through the course of the um, holiday season, uh, I believe it was 46 ride lanes we ran. Um, we did have one impaired driver. I do know that some of the other jurisdictions, OPP, for example, had quite a few more impaired drivers. Um, so as you know, in our jurisdiction, we run ride lanes all year long. It's not just at holiday time. And uh, we have done literally tens of thousands of stops on ride lanes, and we'll continue to do that. And we have had um, an increase, I'll say, in the drug-impaired driving and the statistics there. One of the things I'd like to compliment the public again and is on um, on the uh, Operation Lookout where they phone if they believe somebody is impaired. And that can be, you know, like you say, it's distracted driving, but they're weaving. The hazard is just the same. Um, so, oh, I've got them here. So Hamilton impaired driving December 23rd through the 2nd, 16 arrested, 14 impaired by alcohol, one by drug, and one refused. Uh, five, oper- uh, five arrests from Operation Lookout and five arrests from alcohol-related car accidents. So, yeah, that's still concerning. <coughs> Pardon me. And as we know um, from the statistics, our actual highest rate for recidivism or our area of focus is actually in the 30 to 50-year-old category. Uh, it's not the younger, not that they're absent. It's just that's not the main thrust. It is the 30 to 50-year-old category. Uh, 24 hours a day. And that surprises a lot 24 of 24 hours a day. Just you, you find an awful lot of these people at 8 o'clock in the morning intoxicated. Yeah, and I think I've spoken to Bo- before on the show, and I was a breath tech for eight years. Uh, the highest readings I had were usually Monday mornings or Sunday mornings where a person was consuming, all, uh, obviously to excess with high readings, and then gets up after three or four hours sleep and figure, okay, well, I've shaken it off. Well, you roughly eliminate uh, about 15 milligrams per hour. Um, so that's only 45 milligrams. If you got a snoot full and you're, you're running 350 milligrams, uh, you're only dropping down to still just over 300. So you may think you're in control, um, but you're not. And, uh, you know, if you're consuming on that regular basis anyway, uh, you may have a blood alcohol concentration that's high to begin with if you regularly consume. Uh, when I've done the equations, we used to calculate what that was the equivalency of. Uh, some people had the equivalency of either a 26 bottle of um, 40% alcohol in their bloodstream at that time. And usually you ask them what they drank. They'd say, well, no, I had a Mickey. Uh, then I had a case of beer. And you'd say, you know, 6, 12, or no, well, no, 12. And then I had, uh, you know, half a bottle of a 26er. And you'd think, like, wow, one, I couldn't do that, mm. nor do I want to. And then two, that's the risk it places people at. So the Monday morning get up after or the Sunday morning get up after the night before, uh, be cognizant that your blood alcohol may still be quite high. Uh, 905-645-3221, start 9900. Uh, your phone calls, your questions for Hamilton Chief of Police, Eric Gert. Uh, we'll start the phones with Frank. Frank, good morning. Welcome to the program. Hi, Bill. Good morning, uh, Chief. Good morning, Frank. How are um, you? I, I, well, I'm fine, thank you. Uh, I want to just, uh, before I ask my question, I, I found it quite interesting over the break, the holiday break here, where they were they were showing the actual amount of content that one would drink in in any type of alcoholic beverage, and what the reading would likely be. And I was amazed at uh, how little you have to drink to um, exude a a a zero eight or even a zero six, getting close to zero eight. And uh, you know, I, I thought it would be fitting if most drinking establishments, particularly people that sit at a bar 
but have a little bit of an imprint inside the, uh, did you know that such and such equals this? Because I, I, I tend to think that after all these years, we've been watching that people don't go out and drink and drive, and I think if I could say this word uh, not so liberally, the, the, the innocence is they don't realize that they are. They think that they they only had one beer, or they only had you know, and, and that and they had a cocktail what before they ate somewhere, and then they they get out uh, and drive two two and a half hours later, not realizing that they could still be uh, you know slightly inebriated, uh, even though that they think they aren't. <laughs> and it's it, I just want to make that comment. I, I think it's very interesting. I, think, I don't think a, a lot of people. Uh, who do this thing, and I can say innocently realize that they are um, not as good as they would be otherwise without yeah. having a drink. Anyhow, um, my my question is, if you're driving along the highway and you encounter somebody that's uh, erratically driving, um, whipping in and out, is it permissible, I, I know it is, but is it, to, t- to call a report in at 9-11, is there another, I know that 9-11 should be reserved for, you know, dire emergencies, but is there another number that one could call um, well, you know, I mean, I mean, if you're in the you know, local highway in Ontario, that's one thing. But in the in municipality that you're in, yep. like for example in Hamilton, is there another alternate number that one would might want might want to try instead of the 911? I'll, I'll uh, listen to you on the air here. Okay, thank you. Thanks that's so much, thing. Frank. Thanks, Frank. Uh, actually, I'm going to do two part answer to that. Uh, first of all, we do have an aggressive driving hotline number, and you can go to our website and get that. It comes into our traffic, and we do do follow up on that. Relative to life-threatening circumstances, um, that is a 911 call in any jurisdiction. Obviously, when we went to Operation Lookout, um, and I remember in our original um, <coughs> implementation of this program, we had discussions with the chief at the time, and I thought he distilled it quite nicely. He said, no, it's a 911 call because it's life-threatening, and you don't really have to get more complicated than that. So the same thing with the behavior you've described. If it's life-threatening, you know, people almost get sideswiped, it's a 911 call. Uh, for the aggressive driving hotline, and we handle both school buses issues and aggressive driving in general. We will fact, and of course we need a license plate to follow up. If you get a description of the driver, that's helpful as well. So that's the answer to that one. Relative to the campaign about, you know, you can have this much to consume and its effect, uh, that was done probably about 20, 30 years ago. If you recall, you know, if you have 40% alcohol, it's this. If you have a glass of wine, it's that. If you have a beer, it's this. Part of the difficulty, and I think the reason they've steered away from that is you have individual variations on uh, what can be consumed and what is eliminated. Uh, general rate of elimination, as I said, is a, between 15 and 25 milligrams per hour. It depends on the person's physiology. Uh, but more importantly is, and we've talked about this relative to drugs versus alcohol, alcohol goes to water-sensitive tissues, and of course your brain has a lot of water, and that's why it's affected the way it is. Drugs, and particularly marijuana, is absorbed in fat cells, so the biochemistry is different. But for the rate of consumption, if, let's say, you're a heavy person with more fat than uh, muscle, you can actually absorb less alcohol into your system. So it's just not a straight um, kind of uh, calculation based on size, weight, and all the rest. Many things enter into it. So our message really has been, don't drink and drive. And, you know, relative to Frank's comments about what I could or not ingest, I think usually when people are saying, well, I'll be safe to have two or three or four or five, what do they figure that would be safe? But there's other things. There's, you know, what's your, have you slept recently? Have you consumed food? Is the alcohol going to be absorbed in the food as well as your body? Are you just drinking alcohol straight? Um, are there other factors within your vehicle that affect? So um, for me, I don't want to get into you are safe to drink this amount. I think you got to look at the totality, which is, I think, why they're steering away from that. 
plus all the also the individual variation on people. Got an email here from Larry. Uh, says couldn't stick around because he's uh, heading off on the road, but he's going to listen to it on the, in, on the radio in the car. Uh, his concern is about uh, what he calls illegal left turns into the Shell Tim Hortons area around South Service Road, traveling west on the corner of Fruitland Road. I know the area that he's talking about. He, I said, it is clearly marked no left turn. I'm in that area all day long, and, and if the city needs revenue, just sit there, and you get no less than 30 people doing it. Uh, they will also make U-turns in the middle of uh, Seaman Street and the intersection there. Uh, so there's an enforcement issue, but let's talk about the logistics of that, Chief. Yes, there's kind of two approaches on this. We can do a straightforward enforcement um, pattern, and I've talked about again on this show. Are there um, traffic solutions, physical barriers, or other things that if it's that um, hazardous, that it just doesn't permit you to do the thing? So, for example, uh, one that was done uh, some years ago that's been changed since when they uh, made a two-way flow on uh, John Street was all four lanes used to travel through, and they gave you the option of either going straight in the right curb lane or turning right. And the second lane over thought that the person would turn right uh, when they proceed straight, then of course you have a collision between those two vehicles. And so put a bollard on that inside curb lane that doesn't allow the person to go straight. So that's a traffic solution to a recurrent problem. That's just one example. Relative to left-hand turns, and you've seen it uh, particularly with uh, medians that are introduced uh, on major roads where you can't turn left because you're going to be driving over a six-inch curb, and that tends to cause problems to your undercarriage, and you generally turn right instead of turning left. So two solutions, an enforcement solution or a traffic solution. And, um, you know, they generally try and regulate through signs to get compliance for the most part. Uh, we will, in fact, go and issue those tickets. But if it's just a main uh, thing that recurs all the time, my approach has always been, is there a physical solution to this problem beyond uh, just having a sign posted? Very quickly, because we're just about out of time, because he also mentions about U-turns. I asked Klaus Wagner when he was on the yes. show about this a couple of years ago. Uh, U-turns are legal, unless posted otherwise. If And he said, with the proviso that you do it safely. That's correct. Other than a bridge viaduct or tunnel, yeah. you can't do a, um, a U-turn. I believe it's in 500 meters of any of those uh, physical things. Yeah. But he's correct. And think about Meadowlands, for example, when you're driving down Golf Links Road. The U-turn in many cases is prohibited in the intersection. Um, I think from a traffic safety standpoint, they generally do not recommend U-turns because you could have people passing behind you that you don't see. And all of a sudden, um, and actually you would be a folks, it's left turn, fail to avoid reasonable opportunity for collision uh, as a vehicle passes you. Uh, that's one thing. But it's just generally not recommended to be doing U-turns. But in fact, other than where prohibited and under those circumstances of the Highway Traffic Act where you can't do it, Bridge Viaduct Tunnel, then you can, in fact, make a U-turn. But doing so safely is a little more problematic. Yeah, and to your point, when you're making that turn, uh, you can't see what's what's going on to the left of you until you Correct. actually make that turn. So be wary. Or even very quickly in an intersection, the guy making the right turn on the right doesn't expect you to do that, and I get a collision. Yeah, well, you shouldn't do it in an intersection anyway. Correct. But anyway, we digress. <laughs> uh, thanks, as always, Chief. Appreciate it. Uh, sorry for the folks we couldn't get to, but uh, we'll do this again in a couple of weeks. Thanks so much, uh, Hamilton Chief of Police, Eric Gert. Thank you, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.